Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you're having a good week. Life getting somewhat back to normal. We are in phase three here in the Rochester area of our step back to normalcy, and that is a good thing. The closer we get to beyond this pandemic, the better it is for all involved. Just glad that things are starting to get there. And, you know, through this pandemic, some things haven't changed. And that's where we're going to start the show. Well, it's a change, but it's not a change. The Buffalo Sabres, run by the Pagulas, Kim and Terry Pagula, have been a disaster since Terry Pagula bought them nine years ago. Haven't made the playoffs, haven't really done a whole lot. They've made two great moves, signing Jack Eichel, drafting Rasmus Dahlin. I guess you could say that bringing in Jeff Skinner and the trade, that was good. I'm not sure the re-upping of Skinner was good. But this has just been a disastrous situation. Three weeks ago today, Kim Pagula announced on the day that the Sabres were eliminated for the ninth straight year from the playoffs that general manager Jason Bottrell would return as the general manager. At the time, I'll read the quote, he's our GM. Our plan is to continue with him. I realize it's not popular with the fans, but we have to do things that we feel are right. We have a little bit more information than a fan does, some inner workings that we see positives in, end quote. That was Kim Pagula three weeks ago, belittling the fans by saying we have a little more interest, putting her foot in her mouth yet again. And then this morning, a statement that includes this. Our fans deserve better. We are all tasked with the burden to improve and provide a consistent contending team for years to come. That's from Terry Pagula. That's what the Sabres announced this morning, that they're moving on from Jason Potro after three horrific seasons. The press release stated that there may have been some philosophical differences over the last few days. Ralph Kruger, the second coach that Bottrell hired, apparently he and Bottrell maybe weren't on the same page. And the team, the organization, they believe in Ralph Kruger. If you listened or paid attention to the players' exit interviews to a man, they spoke very well about Ralph Kruger. So if you think of the Bills and what the Pagulas have done successfully there is – They hired a guy in Sean McDermott, who then had a lot of influence in bringing in his general manager, Brandon Bean. Now, Bean and McDermott have been a great pairing. They've worked well together. And again, you look at it, McDermott essentially hired Bean. That's how that worked. And the pairing has worked well and provided playoffs in two of their three years Together, the Sabres, well, if they believe so strongly in Ralph Kruger the way they did in Sean McDermott, then it makes sense to give Kruger his guy. Kevin Adams, who is the senior vice president of business administrations within the organization, will now be promoted to general manager. He's not the interim GM. He is the GM. So Kevin Adams goes from senior VP of business administrations to the job as general manager, replacing Jason Bottrell. Now, Bottrell's 
moves have not been good. His management of the salary cap has not been good. A lot of people speculated that when Bottrell took over, he was burdened with cap issues left behind from previous general manager Tim Murray. If you study the numbers, it's not the case. As a matter of fact, the team is in much worse cap situation now than it was three years ago when Jason Bottrell was hired. When he came in, he was a former Sabre. He came in as a guy who helped the Pittsburgh Penguins build a farm system that supplied the parent club with great players and led to big-time success. Here in Rochester, the Amherst have been okay. They haven't had playoff success, but they've had basically what you'd call a, a good winning team during the regular season, just not good enough to contend. The bigger problem to me with the Sabres is outside of Dallin and Eichel, there aren't very many elite players, and there isn't a depth level of really good players. You know, Think of the Bills right now, the way they built that roster. I don't know that there's an elite player on that roster outside of Tredavious White, maybe Stephon Diggs. Remains to be seen how he and Allen will work together. But there are a lot of really good players. You think of the balance throughout that defense, the solid play of the offensive line. There are good players almost everywhere. With the Sabres, you get to the third line, and you're promoting guys that maybe shouldn't even be in the league. And if they should, they should be a fourth-line player at best and maybe somebody who's a healthy scratch on a lot of evenings. That's where, to me, the depth at the NHL level hasn't come through. Now, Dylan Cousins, last year's number one draft pick, the organization thinks very highly of this young man. It's going to be a lot of pressure on him because this year he'll be a saver. And this year, all eyes will be looking at him to become one of those depth pieces to strengthen the team down the line. So big morning, Kim Pagula making this move. The statement, I found this interesting too. The Sabres statement today was from Terry and Kim Pagula. Kim, who's been the sole spokesperson for the organization as the president of the Sabres in recent weeks, now is joined by her husband in releasing this statement. So you wonder if some of the inner discussions that followed her statement of three weeks ago today saying, you know, that the Sabres have a little bit more knowledge than the average fan has played into what's going on. And they may realize there is an image problem going forward. We'll get back to the Bakulas as it relates to the Bills, but that's the news of this morning. The biggest thing going on in the world of sports right now in this pandemic age and in this day and age of the protests and social movements that hopefully will change this country once and for all is that Major League Baseball simply can't get it together. Major League Baseball, again, has an opportunity. Right now, we are killing whatever sports we can watch. This last weekend, NASCAR ratings were extremely high. The golf, the first tournament back, no fans, was the highest rated final round in the Colonial Tournament's history. Three times 
the number of people watched the final round on Sunday, as did on average over the last 10 years. Huge ratings. Major League Baseball in this day and age has an opportunity to get eyeballs back on its sport. And what are they doing? Well, they're not doing anything. The players have basically said to let us know when the season starts, we'll show up and be ready to play. They're done negotiating. The owners have submitted three proposals. Each of those three proposals have amounted to a 33% pay cut for the players on average. It's just sliced up different ways. So with the players being frustrated with that, they've said, we're done negotiating. Let us know when the season begins. Rob Manfred has the ability to impose a season. That was that came about as a result of the March agreement that in the pandemic's eyes brought together a prorated salary base for the players and gave some negotiating room. So he can impose a season. And last week he said 100% there will be a season. He appeared last night on ESPN, and this is what he said last night. Obviously, that sort of bad faith tactic makes it extremely difficult um, to move forward in these circumstances. What are your concerns for the optics of this circumstance playing out as publicly as they are during the time in this country where all the other things, the confluence of events involving the pandemic and protests in the streets and everything else, of this playing out as publicly as it is? It's just a disaster for our game. Um, Absolutely no question about it. It's a disaster. That's the takeaway right there from the commissioner of Major League Baseball. It's a disaster. Look, to explain the economics just a little bit, the players will make money playing in as many games as they can. Prorated salary. If they play half the games, they get half their salary. Simple how that will work. The owners don't make a whole lot of money during the season because there are no fans. However, playoff baseball, the television revenue is huge. So a short season for the owners shows that they have to pay less in salary because, again, less games, less prorated salary from the owners to the players. And then they still get the benefit of the playoff revenue. And to talk about where that playoff revenue is, Turner Sports just reached an extension. And here – is another bad look for Major League Baseball. They reach an extension that's worth a billion dollars going forward to broadcast playoff baseball. So in the middle of the owners saying baseball isn't a very profitable business these days, all of these things that the owners are telling the players they can't do because it's all about the money and they're not making the money, they're making a billion dollars for playoff baseball. There are a lot of owners reportedly, do not want a season at all this year. They will only lose money if there's a season. What's really troubling, too, is when you look at to the future. Now, this season ends, and who knows? I, I still am of the belief that they're going to jam a 50-game season down our throats. Baseball, 50 games doesn't work. Last year, it's been pointed out several times, the Washington Nationals, 
the World Series champ was 19 and 31 after 50 games. Baseball is the ultimate marathon. It's not a sprint. 50 games does not do it justice. The team that wins this season won't be looked at as a champion. They'll be looked at as a team with a giant asterisk next to it. So there's that. The other thing is there's a labor agreement that needs to be negotiated coming up after next season. So who knows what happens this year? Who knows if spring training's open in February of next year, how that works out. But the likelihood is that after next year, there is going to be a prolonged shutdown of Major League Baseball. So right now, all that's going on, this is just kindling wood for the fire that's going to start when these two sides try to get together and try to figure things out. Beyond that, and, and as a New York Mets fan, I, I follow that team very closely. The Mets aren't the only franchise that are going to be going through this sort of thing. But because I know them best, I'm using them as my example here. No baseball this year or a very limited baseball that results in owners likely losing tons of money is a bad thing for franchises that are cash-strapped. And there are several. You look around the league, teams like the Pittsburgh Pirates, Miami, Dol- Miami Marlins come to mind immediately. These are teams that won't compete financially for a myriad of reasons anyway, but they're not alone. There are big market teams that have financial issues as well, and none more obvious than the New York Mets and the Wilpons who lost tons of money with the Bernie Madoff scheme. The Mets situation is going to be one of those that I think is more indicative of the reality than we may come to expect. You look at this team as it was set up for this year, and I thought they were in pretty good shape to compete this year in the National League East, a very good division. However, with the backdrop being that the Wilpons were trying to sell the team, they had an agreement in place to sell them for $2.6 billion to hedge fund billionaire Steve Cohen. That fell apart because they wanted to run the team for the next five years while Cohen got his feet wet. He backed away from that. They also own the, the network, SNY, that broadcasts the Mets games. The Mets apparently lose 50 to $100 million a year, and the network actually makes money. So getting rid of the team, keeping the network, smart move. But now any buyer is going to look to get the network along with it because we talked about the finances of baseball. You're not going to make money owning a team like the Mets. So here's a team in New York, the biggest market you could be in. They are second fiddle always to the Yankees. But after this year, you've got guys like Marcus Stroman, Jeb Lowry, Joanna Cespedes, Rick Porcello, Justin Wilson, and Wilson Ramos, all up as free agents. Their savings will be $53 million if they walk away. The Mets payroll for this year was supposed to be $166.5 million. The odds that the Mets spend much of that $53 million to replace those players is zero chance if the Wilpons still own it. Here's the other part of it. Noah Syndergaard, Steven Matz, and Michael Conforto will be free agents after next season. The odds that the Mets 
re-sign any of them in this current state is ridiculous. It just will not happen. So now you're looking at losing the players to free agency. These three players more likely than not to be traded because you have to get something back for a player you're not going to re-sign. And you've got one of the biggest market teams going through a rebuild and putting a AAA squad out there that's reminiscent of the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Miami Marlins, who I mentioned earlier, except for Jacob deGrom. And who knows? There may be a time where Jacob deGrom and his $30 million paycheck may be traded as well. This is not good for baseball. However, the Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office, Rob Manfred, are very loyal to the Wilpons. Bud Selig was very close to the Wilpons. Manfred worked very closely with Bud Selig. Somebody should step in and take this franchise away, similar to what they did with Frank McCourt in the Los Angeles Dodgers a few years ago. It's not likely to happen, but I'm sure the Mets aren't the only organization that will go through this time with no revenue and be a much worse organization coming out on the other side. Here's the other thing. They're still trying to sell it. J-Lo and A-Rod maybe trying to buy it, possibly Robert Kraft being part of the group looking to buy it. The $2.6 billion that they got from Steve Cohen or the offer that they got from Steve Cohen, no chance. This is a situation now where this team may go for less than $2 billion, which it doesn't seem like that would be a steal because, my God, is that a ton of money. But in the relative scheme of things, that is a huge, huge savings for somebody and huge loss for the Wilpons. And as a lifelong Met fan, couldn't think of an ownership group. I'd be more happy that they lose money than the Wilpons. So there's the Major League Baseball business side of things. Not going anywhere soon. I do expect at some point in the next week or two, we're going to have a mandate 50-game schedule and probably be not 50 on the dot, 57, somewhere along those lines, just so the owners can get their playoff money from the, the television networks. Baseball screwing up again. You know what else they screwed up? The steroid era. And this weekend, the ESPN 30 for 30 long gone summer highlighted the summer of 98. Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, the home run chase, trying to beat Roger Maris chase. It was an interesting documentary. It was well done to an extent. I want you to listen to the preview about it, and, and then I'll tell you why I didn't like it. What's baseball media? It's in my blood. It's my life. I was just happy to be there. Records in baseball matter. Who going to finish first? I believe I was putting on the third at home run. Chicago, St. Louis, two arch rivals in baseball. What a show these guys are putting on. It was a feel-good thing throughout the country. In retrospect, there was a price to pay for it. So you saw there a couple home runs and, you know, the summer of 98 was, was great for baseball. Well, let me start there because after the strike shortened 94 season, when they called off the world series, people left baseball. They weren't coming back. Cal Ripken in 96 brought a lot of people back. 
And then Mac and Sammy in 98 brought a lot more back. Similar to the NBA with Magic and Bird bringing them out of the tape delay era and then Michael Jordan taking it to the next level. That's how I view what happened in baseball. Cal Ripken got him to a point and then Mac and Sammy took him over the edge. In 98, there was whispers, talk, obviousness about steroid use in baseball. And I think it's very important to point this out. Steroids were not illegal in baseball. They were an illegal drug in society. They were like weed or cocaine or whatever your recreational drug of choice would be. There were laws against steroids. In baseball, there were not. There was a point in the summer of 98 where the media saw Mark McGuire's locker had Anderson Dione in it, which was a legal supplement at the time in baseball, illegal in other sports, illegal in Olympic sports. But people knew steroids were in baseball. And I always found it hypocritical that baseball claimed naivety. Oh, we, we didn't know. We were surprised. I've told this story a number of times. A Major League Baseball player I got to know, talking to him about the Orioles at the time, and Brady Anderson, who suddenly went from a 15-home run guy to a 50-home run guy, and asked what's up with that. And he said, Brady's got good vitamins. A lot of dudes got good vitamins. I might have to get good vitamins, too. Oh, there, there you go. So me and nobody in 96 knew about the fact that steroids were a big part of baseball. So guys who were around the clubhouse every day and knew players and talked to players on and off the record every day had no idea, yet they wrote books and glorified everything that went on. You know why? Because it was great viewership. McGuire and Sosa chasing the Maris record was one of those things that brought the country together, really. It was must-see TV. Meaningless baseball in September had 50,000 people there. The Marlins sold out because McGuire was playing down there in September and trying to chase this record. It was fantastic. And you look at the numbers that these two guys put up. McGuire, 299 average, 70 home runs, 147 RBIs, an OPS of 1.222. Sammy, 308 average, 66 home runs, 158 RBIs, a 1.024 OPS. Sammy got the MVP, which a lot of people freaked out. So due to its 70 home runs, doesn't get the MVP. Sosa got it because the Cubs made the playoffs. The Cardinals did not. This home run chase was great theater. And the fact that McGuire's personality came out a little bit, thanks to Sammy Sosa. Sammy embraced the coverage. Sammy was... You know, Chico Escuela from the old Saturday Night Live episodes where he was just happy to be there. And he was a beloved figure in Chicago. And looking at this and watching it and remembering the 20 home runs of March that Sosa hit, all the different aspects about it, I'm struck by a couple things. One is the next year. So, Sammy wins the MVP in 80 in 98. The next year, and McGuire finished the second. The next year, Sosa hit 63 home runs, 141 RBIs, and a 288 batting average. 
So it goes back-to-back 60 home run seasons. McGuire, 65 home runs, 147 RBIs. He hit 278. So think of this. The year 98, these two guys capture the hearts of baseball. They're 1-2 in the MVP, obviously. The next year, their seasons are nearly identical. And McGuire finished fifth in the MVP. Sammy Sosa finished ninth. A dude hits 63 home runs and drives at 141. He finishes ninth. Chipper Jones was the MVP that year. He had 45 home runs and 110 RBIs. He hit 319. That's a fine year. That is fantastic. He had 20 less home runs than Mark McGuire. His RBI total was 35 RBIs less. Greg Vaughn finished ahead of both Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. Greg Vaughn's numbers that year, 45 home runs, 118 RBIs, 245 batting average. What changed from 98 to 99? Perception. That's all it was. They, everyone knew in 98 what was going on. However, the feel-good story was going to be something that everyone remembered, and that's the way it was. But the next year, when it wasn't the feel-good story because that already happened, it was just more the same. The writers ran away from it like it was the plague. Yet they all made money, and they were all on their Sunday morning TV shows complaining about steroid use in baseball, and Barry Bonds was just getting started to become the man that he was. It's crazy to look at this, how it turned out. Neither Sosa or McGuire are Hall of Famers, and frankly, I don't believe that either will ever be, especially Sammy Sosa. Neither probably deserve the Hall of Fame because you look at the steroid use and you expect an increase. But I got to throw this out there. The career home run list of the top 26 people, 26 players have hit over 500 home runs. Number 26 on that list is Gary Sheffield. Eight of the 26 greatest home run hitters in baseball history are known steroid users. Bonds, A-Rod, Sosa, McGuire, Palmero, Manny Ramirez, Big Poppy, and of course, Gary Sheffield. There are a lot of people talking about Gary Sheffield as a Hall of Famer. Maybe Big Poppy as a Hall of Famer. The evidence against these guys is very similar. Sheffield and Bonds took the stand in the same trial, said the same thing. Bonds was a better player. People were outraged. By the way, Bonds was an asshole, so it made it easy for people to be outraged about him cheating and breaking Hank Aaron's records. It's just one of those things in baseball that they've never been able to get right. Another thing in baseball they've never been able to get right. Sammy Sosa had six years in a row from 1998 to 2003, where he hit 332 home runs, 808 RBIs, an average season of 55 home runs and 135 RBIs. There have been eight, eight 60 home run seasons. Sammy Sosa has three of them. Yet nobody thinks of Sammy Sosa as a Hall of Famer. I personally can't ignore numbers. I, I don't know who cheated. I don't know who didn't cheat. I know a lot of people who did. But 
we are to assume that the players we always think are the cleanest did Cal Ripken, Derek Jeter, they never would have done that. We sure? Nobody has any idea. And I, I'm not implicating, implying that those two guys did. All I'm saying is we can't assume in an era where, in my opinion, 70 to 80% of the players were using something illegal, that players didn't use it. We can't assume that, just like we can't assume players did use it. It goes both ways. All we have is the numbers that players put up against numbers other players put up. That's how we've always compared errors. The live ball era, the dead ball era. Last year, the ball was juiced. So you got a guy like Pete Alonso hitting 53 home runs. So you compare numbers per era. Nobody was better in that six-year run than Sammy Sosa. Mark McGuire hit 583 home runs. Sammy Sosa hit 609 home runs. Neither one of them is a Hall of Famer. I know that they lied. I know that they cheated. McGuire eventually came clean, and Sammy in this documentary, they, they brought it up again, and he said, why does everyone care about me? Why, why, with so many players doing it, why do they care about me? And he's right, frankly. There was that leaked list of 103 names or 106 names, that somebody had the list, these players tested positive. The names that have been leaked off that list are Big Poppy, A-Rod, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds. That's the evidence against these guys. But you look at a guy like Craig Biggio or Jeff Bagwell, frankly, those two guys, are there suspicions there? Is anybody going to look at either of those two guys and think, I'm not going to vote for them because they may have. They could have. No. They just put him in. Mike Piazza, one of my favorite players of all time. There were a lot of steroid whispers about Mike Piazza. Piazza's a Hall of Fame. If Piazza used steroids, which many allege he did, it is a Hall of Fame. How do we reconcile the fact that McGuire and Sosa who arguably saved baseball with their performance in 98 and Sosa with his subsequent years, how do we just look at that and go, nah, no, I don't see it. And even more so is the Chicago Cubs and Sammy Sosa. This is something, Sammy was beloved. He was 1A in Chicago at the time to Michael Jordan. I mean, you think about that. Sosa and Jordan were the two Sports heroes of Chicago. He hasn't been back to Wrigley Field in decades. He is persona non grata around the Chicago Cubs. Why is that? Steve Bartman came back. The dude wearing headphones, dropping the ball, and getting beer thrown at him. They brought that dude back. But they won't bring Sammy Sosa back. Baseball can't get out of its own way in any way. But this is another way that needs to be fixed. Sammy and McGuire deserve better than just a documentary that may detail what they did one summer. They played a long time, each of them, and did things that very few players ever in the history of baseball have done. And they're remembered as cheaters and persona non grata. Now, I can't get through a rant about Sammy Sosa 
without discussing um, his appearance. Can we go with that? Sammy is a strange dude in many ways. And he is still God in the Dominican Republic, which is actually really cool. He's done a ton of good down there as far as charitable work. But this is a guy who dresses in a way that you look at him and it's it's like he's a cartoon character. I, I'm no fashion to, to style, believe me. Dressed up this morning. I have a polo on. But you see Sammy in this documentary and you're like, what, what's he going for there? I was just surprised he didn't have his, his normal top hat on during the interview. Yeah, Sammy's a strange dude. But I really think he deserves a lot better than what he's gotten so far from Major League Baseball. Well, as we inch through the summer and hope for baseball to have a return, the biggest thing I think that we're all concerned about for sports returning and and the one sport that we really want to see back because it hasn't been interrupted yet. It's the NFL, obviously the biggest sport anyway, but the NFL is on pace to come back in a way that's normal. Maybe even some fans will attend college football. The NFL will hopefully be beyond the pandemic, have an opportunity for this. Well, All of those plans may have taken a little bit of a backseat this week with the news yesterday that several Texans players and several Cowboys players have tested positive for the COVID-19 virus, including Cowboys running back Ezekiel Elliott. Now, this report that Elliott had COVID was confirmed by his agent. Zeke tweeted yesterday, HIPAA, anyone? And he's right how this is out there without him or his agent being the ones to break the news is really something. He didn't break the news. He confirmed the news that he had the COVID virus. But there's going to be a lot more of this. And frankly, the Texans and Cowboys may be looking at this as a situation of, well, if a lot of our players already have it, we're going to be in good shape come the fall. And that's one of those things that there's going to be situations as this season goes along, assuming it goes along, that teams are going to be interrupted by this virus. Injuries are a part of every season. This year, it's going to be part going forward in a a different sort of way. Along the injury line, yesterday a video came out with Lamar Jackson, last year's MVP, playing beach football, and he looked like Lamar Jackson running through people like he was running on dry pavement, and they were in the beach, and he tripped over a jet ski at the end of the video. People freaked out. They brought up the name Robert Edwards. Robert Edwards was a Patriots running back who played in a Pro Bowl event out in Hawaii, a beach football game, broke his leg horrifically and never really played again. And people brought up that name. Lamar Jackson's a 23, 24-year-old kid. He's playing football on the beach. And people are like, oh, you got to be careful. And I get it. I I totally get it. Lamar Jackson has to be careful. But let's not put something on these guys that's not real. If we all went to the beach, we'd probably play football too. 
I know we're not Lamar Jackson. We don't have that much to risk. But what are you going to bubble wrap this guy? He's at the beach with his friends playing football. And people are acting as though he's being irresponsible. He's got a he's got a team that's counting on him. You can't do that. I heard somebody pontificate about this yesterday, and I'm thinking, are you serious, man? And, and granted, could something happen? Sure it could. Could have been a very bad situation. But let's not expect these guys to live a life that nobody in their right mind would live. Patrick Mahomes last year got in trouble for playing basketball. That I understand. But when you grow up playing sports your whole life, and now you're still playing sports but being paid millions of dollars, you're just going to shut it off? I could name four or five players that were severely injured because of doing something outside of their sport and getting an injury. However, it's not 80% of players. It's four or five guys. And while you got to be careful, you got to live a life. I have zero problem with Lamar Jackson doing that. Eagles suffered a brutal injury yesterday. Guard Brandon Brooks, one of the better guards in the NFL, suffered a torn Achilles. He'll miss the season. That is a big blow for the Philadelphia Eagles, who their offensive line through the years has been one of the strengths of that team. Yesterday, the 49ers announced that they had agreed to a contract extension with head coach Kyle Shanahan, a six-year, reportedly around $10 million a year, buys out the three years remaining on his current deal, extends him for three more years. Good move for the organization, good move for Shanahan. Shanahan's an extremely well-thought-of coach, and in his third year, got the team to the Super Bowl. They didn't win it this year, but they've got great talent on that defensive line led by Nick Bosa, that is a great young football team that likely will be there for a long time to come. And general manager John Lynch has acquired some real star talent. Now, one of the things I've been talking about as we've done this podcast is the Bagulas and their finances as it relates to the Buffalo Bills going forward. Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean are entering their fourth year. Nobody really knows the contract situation of being in McDermott, but generally five-year deals are the norm, which means that this is the fourth year for each of them. You generally don't let a coach and general manager get to the last year of their deal. If you extend them, you do so before that last year. If you can move on from them, you do so before that last year. It's just not good business to have guys with, out of guaranteed future, making decisions for your franchise. Kyle Shanahan getting $10 million a year. His record in the three years he's coached is 23 and 25. Does have a three and one playoff record because he won three games this year. I'm sorry, two and one. He won two games this year before losing the Super Bowl. Sean McDermott in three years, 25 and 23, 0 and 2 in the playoffs. The roster for the 49ers is much better than the roster for the Buffalo Bills. There are elite players on the 49ers. There's an elite player on the Buffalo Bills. McDermott probably shouldn't get $10 million, but $8 million, somewhere along those lines. And while the Pagulas made the move this morning to move on from Jason Bottrell, and that's yet another executive that they're going to pay for not working, 
this is one of those things that you look at if you really want to gauge the finances of the Pagulas as it pertains to the Buffalo Bills, keep an eye on how they handle Sean McDermott and Brandon B. Both deserve a pay raise. Both deserve a contract extension. And frankly, if they don't get it in Buffalo, they'll get it somewhere else. These two guys have made a name for themselves that will keep them employed throughout the NFL for a long, long time. Are the Pagulas willing to spend that money? This is where we have to keep an eye on their situation. Talked about it at length. Their hospitality situations, businesses have basically provided no money and taken on huge losses over the last few months because of the pandemic. The gas and oil industry has also hit the skids. They have capped their wells over a year ago, haven't produced any revenue there. And obviously the Sabres are losing proposition estimate that they lose between 40 and $60 million a year, which leaves only the Bills as a profitable entity in the PSE portfolio. How do the Pagulas manage Sean McDermott, Brandon B? You have to pay these two guys. You absolutely have to. The longer you wait, the more it's going to cost you. And I'm intrigued to see how this happens and how this plays out. And I think it'll be the truest indicator yet of is their financial situation a real situation? One more thing on the NFL before I move on to the NBA is that Richard Sherman this week called out Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones always has something to say. He's available after every game for a press conference right outside the team locker room. Jerry has never met a microphone he doesn't like. But with the civil unrest following the murder of George Floyd, there hasn't been a whole lot come out from the NFL owners. Roger Goodell said many things, including he's encouraging teams to sign Colin Kaepernick. But Jerry Jones, silent, nothing. Where is his commentary? Now, this is a guy who previously said anyone kneels for the anthem, he will bench them. This year, Entire teams will likely kneel for the anthem. The NFL has an easy solution to the anthem if they don't want to see teams kneeling. Though I think this year it will be a little bit different. Most of the country will support the players that kneel. What they can do is leave the players in the locker room when the anthem is played. It's not likely to happen. Remember this. The NFL takes money from the U.S. Army as part of a sponsorship package centered around the pregame festivities and the national anthem. So leaving the players in the locker room doesn't jive with the fact that they're taking money to put on this show before the game. It's the money you're taking causing you a problem with how you present yourself. I would assume the networks won't show the anthem people in-house will certainly see it. Again, guys like Jerry Jones, they always have something to say. Their silence right now is speaking volumes about that. The NBA season is looking to get going again, and there are a lot of things still being worked out about the league going to Orlando to finish the 2019-2020 season, then beginning a playoff Situation: 22 teams will be down there. 
Well, this past weekend, led on a conference call by Kyrie Irving, the players are in some ways reconsidering. Kyrie and several other players, notably Carmelo Anthony is one and Dwight Howard another, don't feel this may be the best time to go about doing this in the wake of the civil unrest with the murder of George Floyd. Maybe it's not the right message to go play basketball at this time. Now, one of the people I've really enjoyed his recent addition to the media is Kendrick Perkins, former Celtic and Thunder player. As a player, it didn't really seem like there was much there. But as a media guy, says it like it is, and he said it like it was. I'm not arguing any of those points. I'm talking about the timing of it. It just looks bad on our union because guess what the owners are doing? The owners are sitting back laughing and say, oh, we can't wait to the next CBA because look at them. They're not together, which we're not right now as a players association. And then I read another statement that Kyrie made saying he's willing to give it up all. Don't be willing. This ain't the time Do to it. be willing. Do it. <laughs> my, Do it. My, my, no, Maya Moore. She didn't. She wasn't willing. She did it. She did she walked it. Walked away from the game of basketball and took this on full time. So Kyrie, Reach. this ain't the time to be talking Reach. about. Oh, I'm willing to do it. No, if you gonna make a stance, do it or don't talk about it. Extremely well said by Kendrick Perkins. And look, Kyrie is a smart guy who maybe is too smart for his own good. He's. A guy who's talked about, he thinks that the earth is flat. He's a guy who's talked about different things that you look at him and, dude, seriously, what's up with you? He's just a different cat. And I give him credit because he's somebody who thinks about things differently. Where he's not a sheep in any way. I like that. But there comes a time where you have to look big picture. And I think Kyrie is missing the boat on this one. Here's the more important thing. LeBron James wants to play basketball. LeBron James wants to finish this season. The most powerful player in the NBA is LeBron James. Patrick Beverly came out this week and said it. Beverly is a member of the Clippers. He said it. LeBron wants to play. We're playing. And that's how the players respond. Now, Kyrie and LeBron, they've not seen eye to eye. They won a championship together. And couldn't stay together because Kyrie doesn't want to be a sheep, doesn't want to go along with LeBron. So these two guys are likely to be opposed on this. But I think when, you know, a couple weeks ago, we were very optimistic that basketball was going to return. It was going to go down to Orlando and we're going to have four or five games a day. I think we need to pump the brakes. All sports are trying to figure this out. The NBA is no different. And while we as fans just go play, give us something to watch, give us something to bet on, give us something to enjoy. There are so many other things involved in this situation, and it's a time that we've never, ever dealt with in our lives. And we're trying to figure it out, and everyone's trying to do the right thing. And the problem is nobody knows what the right thing is at this point. So it's a, a tough situation going forward. We'll see how it plays out. But keep an eye on Kyrie Irving 
he may not play, and I don't know that it's a big deal. And I'm sure there are other players that may not go to Orlando to finish the season. But if LeBron wants to play, they're going to play. So that's it for this week, the Falcon Around podcast. Another week at home, and I just cannot wait to get back into the studio and do things so that it's done with a little more quality. But appreciate you listening. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll talk next week. Have a good week, everybody.